Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise. By your power, we will go. By your spirit, we are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Well, hello, my friend. I'm Carmen LaBerge. You are listening to. Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network, although it may not be morning where you are, and I totally recognize that. Um, So whatever time it is, wherever you are in all the world, um, know this, we're together, and that's pretty cool. So I'm just celebrating in this moment um, the technology that God makes available in our generation. just want to celebrate the ways in which God has made it possible for us to glorify his name to um, commune together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you're a person who says, hey, I I just, I don't even know how I ended up here. Um, It's not by accident. God wants to meet with you. And this is a place and a space where that can happen. And so welcome. Um, I'm Carmen LaBerge, and uh, we have the opportunity every single day to bring the mind of Christ to bear on what's going on in and around us and in the world that God so loves. And so that's what this program is all about. We're seeking to cultivate the mind of Christ by getting ourselves into the word of God, that the word of God might get into us, because that's really what changes everything. And uh, so let's get into it. So today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day, which you can sign up to receive in your inbox every single morning at myfaithradio.com. Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Psalm 119. Verses 28 and 29. And some of you are saying right now, hey, Psalm 119 has, I don't know, something like 176 verses. That's off the top of my head. That could be, I could be off by a couple. There you go. So um, it's a really long psalm. These two verses come um, fairly early in the psalm. And so this is Psalm 119, verses 28 and 29. I weep with sorrow. Encourage me by your word. Keep me from lying to myself. Give me the privilege of knowing your instructions. So it's really important to know um, that Psalm 119 is a highly structured prayer. It's designed as a tool to transform our affections that we might earnestly desire and yearn for God's word. Um, And so it's the longest chapter of the Bible, It's got, I think, as I already said, 176 verses. This one psalm is the length of entire books, like the book of James or the book of Ruth. And the purpose of Psalm 119 um, is really to celebrate God and God's word. Um, These are some parts of verses from Psalm 119 that you might already know. They already be knit into your head, into your heart. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I mean, it's possible that right now you're already singing Amy Grant's Thy Word, right? That's from Psalm 119. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. 
Oh, how I love your law. I meditated on, on it all day long. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things thou hast for me in thy word, O Lord. All your words are true. All uh, your righteous laws are eternal. How sweet are your words, O God, sweeter than the honey, sweeter than honey to my mouth. You are my refuge and my shield. I have put my hope in your word. On and on and on and on and on the psalm goes. Um, This psalm, uh, Psalm 119, refers to God's word in every single one of its 22 stanzas. And each one of those stanzas begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, And so... When you think of the ways that we use songs or poems, poetry, to teach our children the alphabet, you can imagine how this psalm, Psalm 119, might have been used to teach Hebrew children the alphabet and the faith of their fathers and mothers. So every single verse or every single stanza uh, begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, um, but every single one of the stanzas and, well, Psalm 119 mentions God's word in at least one line um, of every single one of these couplets. And so you'll see words like law or testimony, precepts, statutes, rules, commandments, word. All of that is referring to the word of God. So some of these um, portions of Psalm 119 are praise. Others are lament, petitions for wisdom, requests for God to vindicate or strengthen for obedience in life. So this is a good psalm to get into us um, because this is a psalm that celebrates what happens when the word of God gets into a person. So if you've always wondered, like, what would happen to me if the word of God got into me? Well, that's what's going on in Psalm 119. This uh, This is the psalmist prayer. The word of God being so deeply rooted within me, this is what it produces. The prayer of a person who knows God's word and has come to know God himself through that word. If you want that, get yourself into Psalm 119 today. Um, Mark Caleb Smith is going to join us next. Um, On average, on average, uh, someone is arrested in America every three seconds. We're going to talk about who one of those people might be today. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is joining us now from Cedarville University. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Carmen. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm well. All right. So um, if I was out there doing something naughty, like at a criminal level, and the police saw me, they would arrest me on the spot. If I do something criminal um, and nobody's nobody's there like when it happens, it's possible that later on in my life, uh, <laughs> a, a process might unfold that results in an arrest warrant being issued. Um, I might get indicted for something, and then an, this is a different way of finding ourselves um, in the criminal justice system um, charged with a crime. That would be the way that if the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, is arrested, which may or may not happen today, 
Um, that is the way that that would happen. Can we just talk a little bit about the potential of a presidential arrest and maybe your reflections on that? I mean, even you saying the phrase presidential arrest is <clears throat> is remarkable. Um, we've never had a former president arrested, period. Um, in our nation's history, we've never had anyone in this particular kind of situation. Uh, we've had former presidents have their own sets of concerns sometimes. Richard Nixon's probably the most obvious example of someone <clears throat> who maybe would have been arrested and would have been charged with federal crimes, but was ultimately pardoned by Gerald Ford. And so Trump is in a, in a unique situation. Uh, as you said, if an indictment is handed down by a grand jury, which we still don't know for sure that that's going to happen, then uh, the president could either give himself up, surrender to authorities, uh, walk in effectively and just be booked. Uh, or if he doesn't give himself up, then a arrest warrant would be issued and someone would come and slap the handcuffs on him. And, um, you know, knowing President Trump, I'm not sure which approach he would rather take. Mm-hmm. You know, part of the things he might like the spectacle of uh, being formally arrested and handcuffs put on him. But uh, we'll have to wait and see. Um, there is a uh, there is a sex scandal um, as right. a part of this conversation. But yes. I don't know, something like 15 or 16 U.S. US presidents uh, have had uh, children out of wedlock, uh, relationships with people mm-hmm. other than their wives. I mean, it. Th- right. this is this is um, this is something that actually I think the American people maybe are less concerned about. I'm not saying that I'm not saying that we shouldn't be righteously upset um, right. about a person behaving in these ways. But I don't think this comes. I don't think that the underlying relationships um, are are the issue. So can you. Can you maybe tell us what, sure. yeah, what, what is the issue? Because it's not really that it, it, there's allegations of sex outside of marriage. That's not what's being prosecuted here. No, that's right. Um, as you said, that wouldn't be all that highly unusual for a president to be accused of something like that. Uh, but this goes back to a payment that was allegedly made um, from the Trump organization uh, to Stormy Daniels um, and to another woman as well. Um Trump had affairs with these women, and he was effectively, according to charges, um, paying them for silence about those affairs in 2016. If you remember in 2016, this was after the Access Hollywood tapes came out. There were allegations around Trump um, and you know questions about his moral fitness for office. Uh, at that time, he entered into this sort of financial agreement with these women uh, so that they would not talk about their affairs with him. Uh, including the one to Stormy Daniels for $130,000. And even that all by itself isn't necessarily illegal. Wouldn't be unusual for someone to enter into a non-disclosure agreement and attach a sum of money to that. What we don't know for sure is exactly why this would be considered illegal, according to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, because we haven't seen the indictment. But a couple of things could be here. Um, one is this could could have been declared as a campaign expenditure, Um, improperly, according to Federal Election Commission records. If that's the case, then we could be looking at a violation of campaign finance law. I'm not sure that's the case, though, given the Manhattan uh, District Attorney's jurisdiction here. Uh, It's also possible that this payment was recorded as a business expense improperly, uh, according to the Trump corporate records, 
And that then could be a subject to uh, falsifying financial information, which could run into legal problems. So I think no matter how you slice it, though, um, the concern surrounding this is either way, these are relatively small potatoes when it comes to legal problems. Um, and for someone to be arrested for these things would be highly unusual, at least as far as I know, especially if it's anything related to campaign finance. And so um, it isn't the affair. It isn't necessarily even the payment. It's the manner in which the payment was recorded and um, whether or not the recording of the payment would be a violation of the law, either at the state level or the federal level. Okay. And I think that as Christians, um, the deep breath that we have to take in this particular conversation, as people are going to have this conversation today, like this is going to be something, I mean, I this is going to be something people will talk about. Yes. Um, and I think that as Christians, like I have to be concerned for the truth and um, and I have to be concerned for um, for my reaction or my response to what happens. Um, I, you know, I'm past the point where I can control what uh, Alvin Bragg is going to do. And so um, how I'm going to respond to that and then how I am going to be concerned for the truth of the matter. I think that's important. Um, And then even though in the law of the land and how politics works today, you know, it doesn't matter that that it doesn't matter in uh, the relational economy of America today that somebody um, has had or potentially has had or is alleged to have had multiple relationships outside of his marriage. But as a Christian, yeah, that concerns me. Does it concern me that somebody would pay hush money to somebody? Yeah, that concerns me. Does it concern me that somebody would, you know, not record something the way it was supposed to be recorded knowingly because they were trying to hide it? Yeah, that concerns me. So the the legality of something and the morality of something is, I think, a part of this conversation for Christians that may or may not be a part of the conversation for the wider culture. Yeah, and I, I agree. And I think it would be proper for us to take those in, those, those things into account as we consider the overall situation. Um, it's incredibly complex, not only in terms of moral uh, arguments, but also in terms of politics. Um, I think, you know, as a political scientist, what I would want to see is avoid is having this cycle of uh, presidents and former presidents being arrested by the opposing party. Now, again, we don't know for sure that this is a partisan effort on behalf of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, uh, but it sure looks like this could be um, spun up in a way that it could be maximizing this effort to damage Trump for political purposes more so than a a legal problem. And so this is going to get ugly, Uh, You know, the former president has called for protests if this happens. Uh, There are preparations in place in New York to to look out for violence, potentially. And so, as you said, this is not going to go away, and it's going to be a pretty consistent topic of conversation until it happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're talking about it because it's um, it's big news, and we have to decide as Christians how we're going to engage with it um, personally and how we're going to engage with it interpersonally in the conversations that we have today. Uh, Yeah. And if you guys have been listening for a long time, you know that this is not uh, an anti-Trump rant. So for those of you texting in that it is, you're not paying attention. Um, If you've been listening long, um, yeah, uh, well, I can't say it on air, but uh, you you know how I lean. And I I definitely lean in the direction of uh, a more conservative political agenda. And so uh, there you go. All right. We're going to... 
Yeah, we're going to talk about drag queens next with Mark Caleb Smith, because that's a big conversation, uh, not only across the country, but in Christian churches and homes and schools as well. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places. All right, um, let's talk about drag queens. Uh, Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is with us, and there are states across the country and communities um, in many, many places that are enacting laws seeking to restrict um, drag queens mm-hmm, in public spaces and places. So, Mark, read us in on what's happening in at least Florida and Tennessee. It's happening elsewhere as, as well. Um, and then let's talk about the implications. Yeah, I mean, Tennessee is probably the most important one because they've actually passed legislation. Uh, Other states, West Virginia, South Carolina, Texas, I think 11 or 12 in total, are considering legislation that would restrict what are called, at least in Tennessee law, adult cabaret performances. And that would include uh, anything from a drag queen to something more exotic or something even more sexualized. Um, As long as it appeals, this is a key phrase for the law, to a prurient interest. And what that means is it's explicitly sexual. And so we're not talking about something artistic or something that's um, innocent in some particular way. We're talking about something particularly sexualized. Tennessee's trying to restrict that from being on public property. And they're also restricting minors and their access to these kinds of performances. Um, as you said, you know, this has become a culture war hot button issue over the last several years. This goes back to drag queen story hour which created quite a controversy, and these states were trying to crack down on it. Um, And, of course, the LGBTQ community is arguing that this is actually endangering um, drag queens and making the the environment more hostile uh, for them. Uh, You know, Carmen, of all the things that I ever thought I might talk about on a radio program, drag queens is probably at the very bottom of the list. Um, But this has become an important issue uh, because... It really is about uh, minors and their access to sexually explicit uh, conduct. And I think for people to pretend like government has never restricted minors and their access to this kind of conduct or to potentially obscene material, uh, really don't know much about the history of our country. Uh, We have a long history of laws that try to restrict minors in their own ways. Those aren't in violation of the Constitution. Uh, They don't get into an abuse of the government's power, I don't believe at all. Um, and it's sort of a normal thing for the government to do. Um, so I think that part of the challenge, I mean, is how and where and when and who gets to decide what is Correct. explicitly yeah. sexualized performance, what constitutes right. it happening in a place where children are put at risk. Um, right. and, and so I think that those are some of the questions that people are asking. I mean, some of the emails that I've gotten, hey, 
Um, I'm a drama teacher at a classical Christian school. We have guys playing male roles in our spring production of Newsies. Sure. Do we have yeah. a problem? No, so, not at all. Yeah. No. Okay. But no, not that's, at all. This is talking about really sexualized uh, material yeah. bordering on obscene. Yeah, yeah so but I, doesn't I that get to like, okay, so what's the definition of pornography? And you're going to say, well, the Supreme Court says, you know it when you see it. Well, I think people see different things today, Mark, than other people see. Uh, they they do potentially. But um, and while, you know, as you famously referenced, you know, Potter Stewart's quotation there, you know, I know it when I see it. The court does have standards in place that government has to abide by so that they don't define obscenity so broadly that it really does become a threat to legitimate scientific or artistic kinds of expression. Um, it, there's always room for abuse, and there's no argument that something like this could be taken into the wrong context. Um, but we're talking about explicitly sexualized, either nude or semi-nude, or um, graphically depicting sexual reality in a way that it borders on obscenity or is actually obscene. Um, while sometimes that might be a judgment call, as you also know, sometimes it is not. <laughs> and yeah. I think uh, the government taking a little bit of latitude here isn't all that unusual. What they normally do is they get through this by zoning. You know, they allow the government to zone this kind of activity into certain places so that certain permits have to be required or certain locations outside of the city boundaries uh, or in very particular locations at, at times of the day where it's unlikely that a minor could have access. So that isn't uncommon at all. So to drag to pull drag queens into it is a little bit uncommon because of the cultural moment. Uh, but we're not talking about just a performance. We're talking about something that's highly sexually charged. Mm hmm. Um, this is not going away, so we can circle back around to it yeah, in the future. Right. Mark, as always, um, thank you so much for helping us bring the mind of Christ to bear on some of the more political of the headlines of the day. We genuinely appreciate it. Thank you, Carmen. Thanks to you and all your listeners. Take care. Yeah, blessings. Hey, let's take a moment to go upwards with Max Lucado. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. When you think about um, the changes in your own life or in the culture since the pandemic. So I know it's just almost impossible to think back now to 2019, but we actually did live in a different world. <laughs> I mean, we lived in a different world. So I want you to think about, um, you know, try to try to think back four years now um, to 2019 and what life was like. Um, what work was like, what church was like, what family life was like, what friendship was like, what going out was like, what life was like. And and then think about those same things today. Family, church, work, media, how we're having the conversations that we're having, the people who are no longer in those conversations. We're going to talk with George Barna about the shift that has taken place in worldview since the COVID pandemic. And then we're going to talk about the relationship between the things that we value and what we actually do and how we live. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Throw me like a stone in the water, watch the mud rise up. 
Dress me like a lamb for the slaughter. Pour me in your cup. What a joy to have Dr. George Barna back with us. We're going to talk about a couple of releases from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. This um, comes as a part of the American Worldview Inventory 2023. George, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, Carmen. Good to be back with you. All right. So you really do not have good news for us when we talk about the incidents of biblical worldview um, and the change that um, we see since the start of the pandemic. So read us in on this research. Well, we started doing our annual survey of the worldview of Americans back in 2020. We had no idea it was just at the beginning of a pandemic, but that's what it turned out to be. So we did the first wave back in 2020 before all the lockdowns and other drastic measures and found at that point that 6% of American adults had a biblical worldview. We've been doing the study in different ways with different groups of people since then, but every third year we go back and we do a straight national survey representative sample of all adults. And so 2023 is that follow-up wave. And of course, it's also the first wave after all the drastic lockdown and mask and closure measures and whatnot. And what we found is we've dropped from 6% to 4%, which frankly, Carmen, is a little bit surprising to me. I thought with more time at home, with a lot more discussion during that period of time about matters related to faith and spirituality, that maybe people would be reading their Bibles, maybe they'd be exploring podcasts and radio shows and TV shows and other things, reading books related to faith. Well, if they did, they didn't come out to the same conclusions as Jesus would have, because we've had that small decline. Now, let me also say that, statistically speaking, that two percentage point drop could be attributable to measurement error, sampling error, and other kinds of measurement errors that always creep into surveys, no matter who you are, no matter how careful you are, no matter what procedures you use. There's going to be some error because you're doing a sample of a larger population, not a census of it. And so that's possible. But nevertheless, as we look at what's happened with every single subgroup in the population, because almost all, with one exception, have been on the decline, we're pretty confident that this is a real drop. It's not huge, but how much can you drop from 6% in the first place? We're down to 4% now. Yeah, once you get under that 10% measure, you know, every percentage point drop is magnified because you head towards zero pretty quickly. Um, I mean, I'm not worried necessarily that we are going to arrive at the point of zero, um, but there is a, you know, there's a critical mass issue here. There is. And, you know, when I look at movements, movements, uh, social movements are one of the things that I study. And... And, you know, when you look at those movements over the course of, let's say, the last 50 years, you would find that, yes, it is very possible to have a dramatic shift in the nation's attitudes and behavior based on a movement of people who are passionately sold out to their cause, even if they're less than 10% of the population. You can go all the way down to about 2% of the population. And if you're intelligent, you're intentional, you're strategic, you're relentless. Yes, you can change the minds of the public. 
And if you need an example of that, maybe the most recent one is the gay movement or whatever you want to call it, the LGBTQ community and, and what they've done, where they actually launched their movement with about one and a half percent of the population. And now when you look at the attitudes of Americans toward homosexuality, toward marriage, a lot of these kinds of things, transgenderism, you find that there's been a massive shift in the way that people think, despite the fact that that group was a small number of people. So when we look at biblical worldview, if it were to become a movement, we've certainly got enough people to move the dial. But right at this point, I would say, well, it certainly isn't a movement. Or if it is, it needs to change its strategy because it's not being very effective. All right. We're talking with George Barna. Uh, We are talking about information um, developed through the American Worldview Inventory 2023. You can find it at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. Um, George, there, there's probably a lot of people listening right now who say, hey, now look, I you know a majority of Americans still consider themselves to be Christian. Um, maybe what you're talking about in terms of possessing a biblical worldview, you know, maybe your definition of that is just really narrow. So let's talk about these three categories of people who possess some part, maybe, of a worldview that is biblical. Talk about integrated disciples, emergent followers, and world citizens. Well, Carmen, those are the three groups of people that we divide people in related to whether or not they have a biblical worldview. Those who do have a biblical worldview we call integrated disciples, because as you study their lives, what you realize is this is a group of people that doesn't just believe the right stuff. They've actually integrated it into how they live. And so their behavior, which is also something that we measure as part of worldview, also reflects the fact that they buy into biblical precepts and principles and commands. That's part of who they are. So integrated disciples, the 4% that we've been talking about. But then you've got a group of people who buy into some of the principles. They may exhibit some of the behaviors, but not enough to necessarily be noticeable, not enough to really define their life. This is a group that we call emergent followers. And when we look at that particular group, what we see is that uh, they've also declined over the last few years very significantly from 25% back in 2020 to just 14% today. Now, that's, that's really important. That's outside the boundaries of statistical measurement. But it also suggests that people who were kind of on the fence, which is what you might think of emergent followers as being people who lean toward a biblical worldview but haven't fully bought into it you can watch them and you'll say well they're not really sold out followers of christ but they have some of the marks and and they could get there well that's a big drop 11 percentage points in three years Hmm. but then you've got the biggest group of all world citizens these are people who might not buy into anything that the bible teaches or they may buy into a few things that it teaches. They may have integrated a few things into their lifestyle. But by and large, there's really nothing biblical or Christian that's noticeable about their lives. World citizens are the recipient of all that change that's taken place in terms of the numbers of integrated disciples and emergent followers, because they've grown from 69% to 82%. A different way of saying this is that our country is getting more and more secular, and it's doing so at a surprisingly rapid rate. 
Yeah, those uh, those world citizens are secularists, and maybe those emergent followers, um, you know, have some. They have spiritual notions, but not a fully integrated biblical worldview, and that leaves us with those integrated disciples now at just four percent of the population. We're going to continue our conversation with Dr. George Barna, director of research. Uh, at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. We're talking about America's values, and we're talking next about the interplay between beliefs and values. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of what we do on live radio every day. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you at MyFaithRadio.com. Right now, we're inviting you to share your Faith Radio story. What do you love about Faith Radio? What do you love about Mornings with Carmen? How has this program changed the way you think or the way you live, the way you engage others in the conversations of the day? We really do want to hear from you. Your story could encourage someone else and certainly glorify God. So share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leave us a message today. Again, thanks for listening. Continuing our conversation now with Dr. George Barna, um, we are, um, George, let's shift our conversation just slightly to a conversation about how beliefs and values um, are connected and relate to each other. Again, we're looking at research from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. Talk about the practical relevance of worldview and how my beliefs and values are related to each other. Well, Carmen, you know, when we measure worldview, there are two things that you look at, beliefs and behavior. And the idea behind that is you do what you believe. And so your beliefs matter. They're kind of the the bedrock of, of who you are, who you want to be, the kind of life that you want to have, uh, a representation of the kind of legacy that you want to have. But what happens is those beliefs then get translated into behavior And so that's how people experience what you believe. And one of the ways that they experience that, and one of the ways that you realize it in your own life, is through the things that you assign value to in your life. So values, core values are very critical, but they're an outgrowth of your worldview. The things that you deeply believe, the things that define you, then give you a sense of what really matters in the world. Those are the things that you value. And so there's a direct correlation that you find between a person's worldview and a person's values. And that's why, as we've been doing the research, we've found that people who have a biblical worldview tend to have many different values than people who, let's say, are world citizens. They attach value to very different things in their life because they believe very different things and they're trying to live a life that's consistent with their beliefs. And so therefore the things that they value get manifested through their lifestyle. And I'm going to just arrive at a completely different set of values if what I believe is that God is the author um, and I am not. Uh, If I believe that I am autonomous and I am the primary decision maker and driver of my life, that's going to lead to a very different set of values um, than if I were to believe that, you know, God is actually uh, the prime mover of all things and the one to whom I should be responding. I mean, is that what we're talking about here? 
It is. You know, and there are a lot of great examples that we've come up with in the research. I mean, there, there are some values that overlap to a great extent. And so you'll find that people of all worldviews, in America at least, would agree, for instance, that family is critically important. That's the chief value of all Americans. You would find that things like personal independence and justice also emerge from people who have a biblical worldview. Those who completely reject the biblical worldview also think that those are important. But of course, there, then the conversation becomes, well, wait a minute. If I believe in God, I believe that the Bible is truth. I believe that every thing that I do either honors or dishonors God, uh, and you don't believe any of those things, how can we both believe in the same value? Well, it comes down to definitions. And so that's where the conversation has to be very cautious, very respectful, very uh, informed, so that as you begin throwing about the same words or terms, like family, personal independence, justice, we realize, wait a minute, I think you're talking about something completely different. And so when someone with a biblical worldview, for instance, talks about family, they're talking about the structure where one man marries one woman. They believe that's the only way it can be. Their responsibility is to have children. Children are a gift from God, and they're responsible to raise those children to know, love, and serve God with all their heart, mind, strength, and soul, what we would call discipling them. You know, you want to raise them up to be spiritual champions. Someone who's in the world citizen category may believe that marriage covers many more different types of relationships. They might believe that there's no kind of responsibility or obligation to have children, that if they have children, it's not necessarily their responsibility personally to raise them that that's something that the community or the society is responsible for. You know, so you start to see that this common word that we share actually breaks down into many different worldview concepts. Yeah, it's really helpful. I, I think that if if folks want to really deeply understand this, uh, you really need to go and read what, um, what George has been working on uh, in the American Values Study you're going to find it at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. Um, the website is culturalresearchcenter.com. Um, we don't have time to walk through all of the um, uh, all of the insights and observations that you make in this particular one. Um, but I was thinking that if we looked at number five and we talked about the relative appeal or lack of appeal of certain values, um, identifying elements of weakness within the Christian church here in the United States of America, I felt like this was a a way of maybe helping people use this as a tool in their own faith community. Yeah, and hopefully that's what it will become. All of this is not meant to discourage people. It's meant to help us grow, not only in our relationship with Christ, but our ability to live the Christian faith. And so what the research is showing us is that there are a number of different values that while people with a biblical worldview tend to possess them, not as many people uh, in the Christian community possess these as you would hope. Things like absolute moral truth. Now, the fact that, you know, about three out of four people with a biblical worldview believe there is absolute moral truth, that it's not up to the individual, that it's not dependent on circumstances. Three out of four, that's good, but really to to bolster 
your worldview, you need to buy into the fact that when God says something, it's true. God's the embodiment of truth. When he gave us the Bible, he didn't say, here, take this and pick what you like, throw out what you don't, or try to decide when I was kidding or when I was lying. God can't lie. It's not part of his character. So these are some of the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about. Yes, there is absolute moral truth. He gives it to us in his word. Belonging in community, you know, that's another thing that the church, a capital C, is meant to be. Uh, Things like rule of law. God gave us his law, and it's meant to rule our lives. Look at uh, attributes like humility, another thing where a lot of people with a biblical worldview hold that, but a, a much smaller share than you would anticipate. And so these are the kinds of things that this research helps us to identify, and not just so that we can have good cocktail conversation, but so that we can look inside ourselves and try to figure out, how am I doing at really understanding what the Bible talks about, how it exhorts me to live, how I can deepen and improve my relationship with Christ, how I can be light in a dark world? What's it going to take for me to shine such that people are going to look at me and say, something different about that guy, something different about that woman. I need to figure out what it is. And hopefully they'll be able to figure out that it's because Christ lives through us. We actually do have um, shared consensus values with people in the culture whose worldview is vastly different from our own. But, um, you know, minding the gap between us and then closing that gap is going to mean that we develop real relationships with folks Um, with whom we might have shared values, but who arrive at those values from a very, very different worldview. Uh, And so there's a growth opportunity here using values as a growth tool. I invite you to check out um, all of the resources that George has posted. Dr. George Barna, Director of Research at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. You can find it all at culturalresearchcenter.com. George, as always, thank you so much. Thank you, Carmen. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. This is Faith Radio. All right, let's take a minute here and examine um, what China is up to um, on the world stage. We've been talking about this. Um, China's leader, Xi Jinping, uh, holds himself out now as the global peacemaker. Um, He is seeking to provide a diplomatic cover for Russia's war in Ukraine. Um, He is seeking to be a broker of peace, the language of peacemaking is um, is certainly language that uh, people operating out of a Christian worldview will instinctively respond to. So what does the word peace mean? What does it mean to be a peacemaker or a peacekeeper? When you hear the term peacekeeper, you might think of the United Nations. Interesting, I think, that the UN Charter never actually defines the term peace. And so pretty much anybody can be a peacemaker and anything can be peace um, if it is a state where, I mean, a state, a state of being, not a geographical nation state. But uh, if you're living in the midst of a circumstance where there's no war or no state sanctioned hostility, um, where violence is absent, those would be places that the UN would acknowledge and recognize as being places of peace. 
But let's just think about that for a moment. Um, is there peace if the reason that there's an absence of violence um, is because people have been brutalized into non-reaction? Like, I, if people are being oppressed and suppressed and depressed, is that peace? So this is where um, when you see China and China's leader, Xi Jinping, out there on the world stage as a quote unquote peacemaker, you got to get yourself into the mind of um, what China means when when China uses the term peace. Um, we're talking about a nation that is led by people who have a, a communistic socialist conviction that there is no God that they are always morally correct. The party, the Communist Party, is what is morally correct. And so the nature of peace then, or harmony, or nonviolence, actually just means everyone is in rhythm with their way of thinking in terms of morality, and everyone is willingly following their lead. That's what China means when it uses the term peace. When they talk about social stability or harmony or cooperation, that's what they mean. They they mean everyone is doing things the way we think things should be done and under the authority of the Communist Party. They characterize China as peaceful or peace-loving simply because no one is defying them. So just think about that for just a moment. That, that's their uh, understanding of it. And, and so when you talk about a peace-loving cultural tradition of the Chinese people over the past several years, or several thousand years, that's the way Xi Jinping describes it, I want you to think about how many people have died under the communist regime or successive communist regimes um, in the time period that he's talking about there. So, yeah, you can eliminate all the people who disagree with you and you can therefore create what China imagines is a quote unquote peace. But that is not the kind of peace we want to see brokered around the world. It's at least not the kind of peace I want to see brokered around the world. I want to see Christ exalted as the Prince of Peace. I want the peace which passes all understanding to be the basis of our harmony. I want us to um, recognize every person as equally valid and fully human um, because they're created in the image of the living God. I want us to be at peace with one another because we are at peace with God through Jesus Christ and therefore at peace with ourselves. And therefore, yes, we have substantial peace in our relationships, personally and globally. Peace, peace with no Jesus is no peace. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.